New Zealand tech and innovation businesses are vulnerable to the threat of industrial espionage by state actors, according to the head of our spy agency. Andrew Hampton, the Director-General of the Security Intelligence Service, yesterday met with Five Eyes Partners agencies, the United States, United Kingdom, Australia, Canada and New Zealand. For the first time, the Five Eyes agencies have gone public about the common threat of new technology. The group also discussed escalating tensions in the Middle East and the threat implications around the world. Andrew Hampton says there are undoubtedly bad actors who will try to exploit New Zealand private sector businesses, especially those who need investment. Areas that we're particularly concerned about would be, you know, that um, that cutting-edge innovation, for example, in the areas of um, AI. There's been a lot of talk about that, so companies working in, in those areas, we want to be working with them to help them mitigate the the threats. Um, also, companies involved in technologies that potentially have dual uses. This is where a lot of the risk exists. You may have a, a company or um, a research institute working on a particular type of technology. They'll be looking to partner with someone on that. They'll be looking for investment. Um, it's someone who you know is making an offer that's too good to be true you need to be vigilant about that because there could actually be a um, foreign state actor behind there who sees the potential dual use of that technology that's been being developed. Okay, so now we're talking about the I likes of the tele- point- telecoms, for example, right? And are you talking about some kind of Trojan horse possibility? We have good relationships there. Where we don't have relationships are the, you know, um, innovators, small companies, you know, people, you know, coming up with really cool stuff but they're um, of such a small scale that we just wouldn't know who, the, who they were. So part of what um, we're wanting to do here is raise awareness across the board. And one of the things that we've um, launched today with our Five Eyes partners is a set of five principles for um, secure innovation. And it's aimed particularly at those smaller organisations, getting them to ask questions about, well, you know, who are the potential threats to us? How do we secure what's most important to us? What are the steps we should go through to undertake some due diligence on those who want to partner with us? So yes, it is the big companies, the big operators of critical national infrastructure. Of course, we're focused on them, but it's increasingly on those smaller cutting edge companies where a lot of the innovation is actually occurring. Maybe let's talk about AI. In in what way is it posing new threats? Look, there's been a lot of discussion about, about AI. On the one hand, um, artificial intelligence, as I know your listeners will know, have has huge potential to, you know, transform economies to to have really positive benefits for society. But the technology is evolving incredibly fast. The um, potential impacts are unknown. The governance around it, the legislative frameworks around it, aren't aren't keeping up and there's also um, a strategic strategic competition dimension to this where you know you have particular states seeking to you know gain the upper hand in AI technologies now so that's why it's of national security interest in terms of how it can be used you know across the board there's um, potential national security implications so first up in the cyber security area AI is now being used to develop new forms of 
malware and deploy them at a scale we had never seen seen before. AI has been um, used to spread disinformation potentially to um, radicalise people in, in ways that previously were dependent on a human doing most of this now can be done by by machines. Um, in the whole violent extremist terrorism area, there is is real concern and some evidence that um, extremists are using it to assist with their attack planning to help identify both potential victims and people to to radicalise, using it to generate um, deep fakes that then can be used to mobilise people. So you've got all that happening. AI also provides um, means by which um, state actors can undertake surveillance, for example, using facial recognition and the like, not just in ways that, you know, empower people and assist with their ability to, I don't know, undertake, you know, um, cashless transactions, but also to to actually monitor what they what they do. So what has been a big dis- part of the discussion here is how can agencies like ours share information with both the you know innovators but also the venture capitalists who are funding this type of development so they can bring a national security lens to the work they're doing so they are live to the potential of um, dual use as I talked about so they're live to the need to undertake due diligence with the people they are partnering with um, to make sure that they're not actually inadvertently partnering with someone who may use that technology in a way that's inconsistent okay. with our, our values and our national security. Does the AI mean risks of denial of service attacks and risks of those even on critical infrastructure around the world is being increased because of the exponential volume of um, yeah. what's possible with AI? Is that a key concern? Yes. So in the cybersecurity area, and again, I've um, I'm no longer in that um, in the GCSB B role, but developing new forms of malware, for example, normally requires you know a smart developer somewhere <laughs> writing some code and then it being deployed. What AI does is allow you to develop that malicious code and deploy that at scale without a human even being involved. On the flip side, AI is also part of the answer. You can develop. AI programs to spot that type of stuff and um, detect and disrupt it. But yeah, that's definitely a really practical example and it's not a theoretical example, an example where it's happening now. Okay. You can even think in the most basic level around um, phishing emails. You know, AI allows you to develop at scale phishing emails which are potentially more believable than someone who uses, I don't know, some sort of translation app to come up with a with a message to send send to you. Can we talk about the implications for New Zealand companies then? You are warning about yeah. the possibility of dual use, but you're also flagging um, to be careful of who you're investing with. And indeed, you yes. recently released New Zealand... With. Yeah, exactly. You recently released New Zealand Security Threat Environment lists as a risk New Zealand's dependence on foreign investment. So what does that mean, not just for our big companies, but our smaller companies looking for investors? What is the process you believe they need to go through? New Zealand is a trading nation. New Zealand has an open economy, and we depend on foreign investment. So what we're talking about is not trying to, to limit that. It's just ensuring that we bring a national security lens to it. So 
Um, a couple of years ago, the government did introduce um, foreign investment scanning and the intelligence agencies are involved in that. It needs to meet certain certain thresholds. So that's part of what we're doing. Similarly, we have been providing um, guidance to universities and researchers so they can know what questions to to ask. But when you're talking about some of those smaller, more cutting edge organisations, they may not be captured by either of those things. So part of it is just about raising that general awareness. And the guidance that um, that the Five Eyes partners have come up with and have released, it's on our, our website now, just talks through some basic steps that those organisations can go through. You know, know what the potential threats are that your organisation faces. You know, what can you do to secure your your environment? But it also talks about what are some basic questions to ask around your partnerships, and also as you grow as an organisation, recognise that your um, threat profile may well change. For example, if you're moving into new markets, if you're partnering with new new people, if you're taking on new staff, you know, just bring a national security lens to that. And when I say national security lens, it's in the country's interest, but it's actually in your interest as a company as well, because you may find, worst case scenario, you, you lose your intellectual property because you're partnering with someone who you know doesn't have your interest at heart, or it will be harder for you to get to the next stage of growth. For example, you may not be able to meet regulatory requirements unless you've built sort of security in by design. Okay. Are you concerned at all about the foodstuffs trial underway next month for facial recognition and the prospect that that may become more widely used? You mentioned regulatory regimes not keeping up. Is that one area? Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm referring to um, that with respect to specific references in the security threat environment report about yeah. at least three countries keeping an eye on yeah. uh, New Zealanders. Is, is that an issue? And, and, and would you like to see better regulatory um, moves around several of these areas? Yeah, um, that, that particular case is, is not something that we're, um, we have a direct interest in or I would comment on. You know, the, the issue of facial recognition, yes, there does need to be clear um, regulation around its use. It needs to be used in an ethical type way. But it also is something that is here to stay in. Obviously, there will be benefits for, you know, intelligence and security agencies potentially to use those types of technology. But the commercial world is already using them. You know, you you give up your face to your um, your cell phone now in most most cases. Um, you know, you you look at some um, economies increasingly. You know, they're becoming cashless, and you know, facial recognition is a way to to do that. We, we can't stop that. We can't put the genie back in the, the bottle. But it is really important that you have those robust regulatory regimes in, in place. And this is also where sort of the geostrategic dimensions of it come come into play because, you know, some of that technology um, is um, owned by companies in, in jurisdictions that possibly don't have the same, you know, um, values and respect for can, can you can you speak to that for the Andrew? role of law can you that, speak to that? that we have yeah because in your threat assessment report you name three countries from memory it's China Iran and yeah. Russia directly now what is yeah. happening by and, and this is by means of direct intervention uh, the their motivation to watch what the diaspora is doing and to try and control yeah. communications can you be specific about what is happening in this country to people living here by means of intervention from any yeah. of those countries 
we are getting more into the you know realm of classified in, intelligence. But if we go back to that um, threat assessment that we released, we talked about um, those um, three countries in particular as undertaking foreign interference in New Zealand. And the most concerning and most um, insidious type of foreign interference is when you have um, foreign states um, seeking to put pressure on, monitor, um, potentially um, reporting back on the activity of um, New Zealand citizens and, and residents who may have, um, you know, a, a dual affiliation back to to one of those countries. And you know, that's that's a real that's a real concern. And some of that's done through human to human activity, as you would expect. But as we're seeing globally, technology, including you know artificial intelligence, and um, and you know facial recognition and the like, are being used by some of those same regimes to you know um, surveil their own own populations and potentially um, offshore as well. You mentioned the, the People's Republic of China in particular, its intelligence services in particular in this context. Are there cases now where you believe people living here are being monitored? Um, we would not have referred to them in our threat assessment if there was an intelligence backing of what we said. Have there ever been any involuntary repatriations of people living in New Zealand? That type of activity has definitely occurred internationally and obviously would be um, inconsistent with with New Zealand law. If you go to the threat assessment, we list the types of activities that we have seen in New Zealand. And whilst um, that is not referred to specifically, there are a number of other concerning activities that um, are occurring. Being what? Pressure or threats or things of that ilk? You know, there's community surveillance, including um, monitoring and infiltration of community groups. There's harassment, threats and assault intended um, to intimidate individuals to curtail their activities. Um, there is also um, threats to family members back in the, the home home countries. So these are, you know, the types of activity that occur um, internationally and we see evidence of those all intelligence to support those types of activity happening in New Zealand. And whilst, you know, foreign interference can take a range of um, forms, as we've discussed, it is that um, harassment of diaspora communities is the one that we see as most insidious and most concerned to us. The unclassified threat assessment that was published just before the election also talks about the changing nature of threats from radicals. First, can I refer yeah. back to... Um, Again, you were in a different different job at the time, but but what yeah. has happened since the 2019 mosque atrocities? What is stronger yes. about our surveillance of threat? And then we'll talk about how the nature of those threats, your report says, has changed. Hand on heart, what has strengthened since the mosque atrocities? Um, across the national security system. Um, there has been a number of um, significant changes since the um, horrific mosque attacks. And um, these, to a large part, were, um, were um, in response to recommendations from the, the Royal Commission. So um, to give you some specific exa- examples, you know, my, 
my previous agency, the the bureau, largely externally focused, sort of waited to be asked to use its, you know, um, significant signals intelligence capabilities by domestic agencies. They are now much more integrated with police and NZSIS when it comes to, you know, the violent extremist threat. So that's the, the first thing that has changed. Um, there is a lot of work um, still ongoing around how agencies can work more effectively together. Um, the service and police, for example, have um, introduced um, a whole new process around how we work together around um, allocating leads. So it's really clear that when a lead comes on, who's leading on what. Um, a key thing that the Bureau has done, sorry, that the service has done is release its indicators report. So this came out about a year and a half ago, um, and it outlined what are indicators that may suggest someone is mobilising to violence. Now, that has landed incredibly well and has generated a lot of leads. And then the threat assessment itself, which is, you know, raising public awareness, increasing public um, debate and discussion about the nature of the threats. The point I will add, though, is um, whilst violent extremism is a real concern to to our agencies, we need to be able to focus on multiple threats at any one one time. And indeed, that's one of the things that's been discussed a bit at the, the summit, is how can we focus on the foreign interference threat, the threats posed by um, emerging technology, as well as, you know, the if you like, the more traditional threats around violent extremism and, and, and terrorism. And part of that is recognising that our agencies need to partner better across the board. So partnering with the private sector, obviously, but also partnering with community groups. And I think this is an area since the mosque attacks where there has been um, significant progress. Um, my predecessor, um, Rebecca Kitteridge, did, um, I think, some really significant groundwork in building relationships with, with community groups, which I have um, continued continued with. It, it refers to the pandemic, it refers to um, uh, New Zealand online communities, the report claims being used yeah. by other countries. We know we had uh, violent threats made uh, by those uh, aggrieved by some of the circumstances of the pandemic. There was at least two prosecutions yeah. I can think of. What I want to ask you is, is there an ongoing overview of a community or communities that were very active and in some ways uh, some members of at least were issuing threats, is that yeah. continuing as a current threat assessment as it changes from, potentially changes from one focus to another? We tend to categorise um, the, the violent extremist threat in terms of motivation. So Yes, there still are a small number of what we would call faith-based violent extremists of concern to us. People have warped views of, of, of religion who will be using that as a justification. So unfortunately, that has not, those threats have not gone away. We, are, we have also seen, though, um, an, um, a growth in the identity-based extremists. So, you know, the the white supremacists, very noisy online. And one of the challenges is how you um, sift through all the awful but lawful stuff to identify those who really have the 
intent and capability to undertake a terrorist attack. What you're referring to with the pandemic, though, is you know um, what we call politically motivated violent extremists, people who will use um, some sort of political ideology as a justification for, for extremist behaviour. What we've seen there um, is, again, a lot of awful rhetoric on, online, but um, only a small number of individuals are real concern to us. Okay. There is a final yeah, question. But, but, uh, j- j- just so one, the, the one question was, point. is that, is Sorry, that, is Kevin, that observation ongoing? Yes, what I would say is in terms of our, our intelligence effort, it is spread probably evenly across those three areas of concern. Okay, final question, so, if you would. I know you've got it, others wanting to talk to you, but there is obviously yeah. a deteriorating global geopolitical situation, major conflicts in Ukraine, yeah. but now the risk of a spiralling conflict in the Middle East. What is the role of the New Zealand intelligence agencies at a time like this, uh, threat assessments being generated or updated as we speak? The terrorist threat level is still set at low. That doesn't mean non-existent. That still means... Uh, a violent extremist um, attack, a terrorist attack, is still still possible. There is just not intelligence that we have at the moment suggesting anyone is mobilising to violence. So I think that's the that's the overall picture. But we are very live to the impact of um, of events in the Middle East and elsewhere, and what that may do to both the global threatscape, but also the domestic threatscape. And there has been engagement with my agency and other agencies with um, communities um, who are feeling very anxious about what is occurring in the Middle East. Um, And, you know, we are very aware of um, the concerns they they have and and working with them to to make sure that, um, you know, we are aware of any intelligence that suggests that they are they are at risk and obviously working with police to make sure that um, there is not an escalation. That is Andrew Hampton. He's the Director General of the Security Intelligence Service. I was speaking to him yesterday after uh, a public uh, panel appearance of the Five Eyes partner agencies, the United States, United Kingdom, Australia, Canada and New Zealand. They were in uh, California and the focus of their meeting was encouraging companies to be alert to uh, threats both to their IP and also possibly to use of their innovations uh, by other state actors.